0: Good morning, Alaska, and welcome to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. The secondary trauma is taking a serious toll on healthcare workers across the country. The constant exposure to death, the sense of powerlessness, the backlash from the community and politicians, and watching patients die alone has caused a spike of resignation and staffing shortages that have only heightened the stress and pressure felt by those who remain on the front lines. Many healthcare workers do not want to associate their symptoms to PTSD because they compare their trauma to that of soldiers or abuse victims. World renowned expert on PTSD, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, knows better, stating On the surface, a nurse at your local hospital will not look like a soldier coming back from Afghanistan, but underneath it all, we have these core neurobiological determined factors that are the same joining me today to discuss the impact of the pandemic on the emotional and mental health of healthcare workers in Alaska are psychiatrist Dr. Lisa Lindquist from Providence Hospital and family physician and physician coach Dr. Tanya Kaler. Welcome to the program. I appreciate you both for taking the time to join me today.
1: Thanks for having us. We appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Um, I need to take a second to remind people that we appreciate any listener participation on line one. So if you have a question for my guests or a comment about today's topic, there are three ways to connect with us. If you're in the Anchorage area, our f- local phone number is 550 That's 550-8433. And if you're listening outside of Anchorage, you can reach us toll free at one 888 353 five two last way is to email your questions to line one at alaskapublic.org got to spell out line one l-i-n-e-o-n-e we will do our best to get your uh, get your questions on the air um folks usually wait until about uh 20 minutes till or quarter till to start calling and sending in emails and then i'm uh running out of time so if you have something for us today try to get in earlier and we can spread those out um All right. I guess uh, I'd like to take for each of you to take a minute to talk about your educational background and what you do for work and your involvement in the area of mental health and healthcare workers. And I guess uh, we can start start with you, Dr. Lindquist.
1: Great. So, like you said, I'm Lisa Lindquist. I'm a physician. I currently work at Providence Alaska Medical Center. I was actually born and raised here in Alaska, and then obtained my undergraduate degree in biomedical sciences at Auburn University in Alabama and then went on to the University of Washington for medical school through the WAMI program. Subsequent to that, I attended the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for a general psychiatry residency, where I also received training in perinatal psychiatry, addiction, and interventional psychiatry. I am board certified both in general psychiatry and addiction medicine. And right now, I primarily work as a consultation liaison psychiatrist at the hospital, meaning that the bulk of my work is seeing patients who are admitted to medical surgical units, the intensive care unit, for a lot of different reasons who are experiencing to some degree some, some level of neuropsychiatric symptom or disorder uh, which warrants acute care. Uh, but additionally, as part of my role as the chair of psychiatry at Providence, I also work with our uh, medical director for wellness in the medical staff office to assist and provide support to a variety of healthcare workers within the hospital Um, and and most recently during the current pandemic. Um, Oftentimes this is just providing them a small amount of support during their workday, but I also assist in running our ICU town halls, which is a version of a support group for our ICU caregivers, and also work on connecting our healthcare workers at Providence and throughout the state with mental health and wellness resources so they can feel safe and supported.
0: All right, so you're kind of all over the place. You're doing lots of different (laughs) stuff, it sounds like.
1: Yes, I'm a
0: little bit busy. All right. Uh, Dr. Kaler, a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure. My name is Tanya Kaler. I'm a family physician, trained um, undergrad, the majority at the University of Florida, and then finished up uh, in the Panhandle as my husband started medical school. Um, we went to University of South Alabama for medical school, and that's where I also did my residency training. Um, I was in a multi-specialty group in Florida for a few years and helped start an uh, indigent care clinic to get all three hospitals uh, cooperating together in um, the people who fell through the cracks back uh, long before the Affordable Care Act was uh, in play. And uh, moved up to um, Anchorage, Alaska about 14 years ago and um, uh, started working in academic medicine, which I had felt like was a um, kind of a calling that I was really uh, drawn to and was um, really uh, glad to join the uh, faculty up here. I worked as core faculty until uh, 2015, had my own little burnout story that's a different story for a different day. (laughs) Um, And then – But remained uh, as on-call faculty as I do now uh, because I really love the academic space. I uh, joined a private practice, uh, uh, worked part-time until I kind of burned for my uh, healed from my own burnout, and then circuitously found um, physician coaching and realized uh, the important impact it can make in the academic space, both for faculty who face uh, enormous challenges. Um, that are mostly uh, unseen by the public and to the resident physicians who have unprecedented stressors. And because my goal is really I want them to enjoy their chosen careers where they have spent so much blood, sweat, tears, time, and money.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: And um, there have been increasing numbers of um, you know, new graduates who are looking for the way out. How do I pay off my bills and uh, leave clinical medicine before they even get fully started just because of the hard road they take? So that's where I concentrate my efforts these days, Um, basically uh, coaching in the academic space. I don't coach up here because I'm still on-call faculty, and so I still supervise up here. So most of my uh, coaching and residency programs are down in the lower 48
0: okay so we don't need to hear your own burnout story but did it sounds like that sort of like funneled you into this uh coaching thing and thinking about physician wellness um and and overall health can you uh tell us a little bit like what does a physician coach do uh like operationally what's that look like day to day
2: yeah so i think um it's it's definitely an interesting space and and um, the wellness part is what really drew me um, into the coaching. Um, I saw people's lives transformed that were physicians by coaching, and that was like, okay, I want those tools because I want to get those to people. And basically, um, the way that my, my approach to coaching, there are so many different approaches, is um, I use mainly a positive cognitive psychology basis with a strengths and values-based approach. Um, work a little bit on acceptance and mindfulness and emotional intelligence because right. we all know the state of healthcare today, um, and there are so many stakeholders um, vying for different things, and there's so many stressors from the outside world that we cannot control. Um, and so, I really try to empower the physicians to find where they do have agency, and then when they are coming from that place of alignment that is when they can actually be the most effective change agents within the system.
0: All right, Dr. Kaler, you're using all the important words, um, and it sounds like you're doing a lot of the same kind of work that that I do and uh, that Dr. Lindquist does, but um, our, this leads me to another question for you. We'll just keep rolling with it. Um, the physicians, are they more likely to seek out a physician coach than they are to go to therapy? Because it sounds like um, that's what you're doing is a lot of the same sort of techniques and, um, cognitive awareness. You mentioned a sense of agency, uh, things that they can control and things they can't control talking about those. So what is it? Um, are they more likely, is there a stigma associated, uh, with seeking out counseling or from a traditional therapist that they might be able to like push through if it's a physician coach?
2: You know, I I think that's really interesting. And I want to back up just a little bit just to clarify, because um, I don't want anybody to mistake what a coach does for what a therapist does. Correct. Um, The way I see the difference in my mind is um, maybe three major things. One is um, if we think of uh, needing a therapist is for somebody that's down in the hole, right? They've they're down deep in this hole, and the therapist is the person who partners with them to get them back up on level ground. And life still may not be great, but that's where a coach can kind of help move them forward. Um, and I think a therapist really is um, key in helping with um, diagnosing and treating, um, you know, DSM-5 diagnoses. And a lot of times, not all, but a lot of times therapy is um, can be past focus, where coaching is almost always future focused. So I think those are the big differences. And as far as stigma, I do believe there's a lot of stigma um, in mental health um, in the physician world. Right. And um, I don't, I cannot speak specifically that it makes it easier for a client to seek out uh, a coach versus a therapist. Um, I, I think that's a, a, a hypothetical that may be very true. Um, but I, because of the way um i work i'm actually working alongside residency programs and not as much as individuals seeking me out if gotcha that makes, uh, a difference yeah
0: that makes sense all right mm-hmm. um dr Linquist, can you sort of maybe tackle the the same question because i was do- in doing my research i found that the suicide rate for doctors is about twice that of the general population mm-hmm. which kind of surprised me i knew that about dentists um, don't ask me why I know that, but uh, dentists certainly do, but but doctors as well. and is it do you think there's what are the reasons behind those numbers? Is it the fact that um, is there some stigma associated with seeking out help when when mm-hmm. doctors or nurses are struggling? they're supposed to be you know the ones in charge and the ones helping and um, is there there's some resistance there?
1: There's a lot of resistance, and I I, want to make sure that I address that really thoroughly. I want to just speak real quick, though, to the piece that you asked Tanya about, that one of the the differences uh, with physician coaching versus seeing a therapist or or what may may reduce that stigma for physicians is that there is a peer on the other side. There's someone that they perceive as understanding a little bit of that work. And and I'll get into why I think that's important. Um, But speaking to the suicide rates, there's a lot of different studies that look at the suicide rate amongst different professionals. Uh, And the numbers vary quite widely depending on the study and the methodology used. But we know that the general population suicide rate is somewhere around 14 per 100,000. In women, it's around 6 out of 100,000. And in men, it's about 20 out of 100,000. We know that women attempt more frequently than men, but men die by suicide or from suicide at a higher rate, which is Mm -hmm. about three and a half times that of women. But for for physicians in general, the suicide rate is somewhere between 28 and 40 per 100,000. Yeah. And what's interesting here is that male and female physicians die by suicide at an equal rate, unlike the general population, where men die much more frequently from suicide. Um, And and in fact, female physicians in particular, their risk compared to females in the general population is about two and a half times that of the general female um, population. There's a lot of different theories as to why this is, and I suspect it's relatively nuanced, and there are a lot of different compounding variables that might increase this rate. There's lots of studies that have tried to answer that question. Um, but we know that there are certain specialties within uh, medicine that are higher risk. Anesthesia, psychiatry, and general surgeons are high rate. Mm-hmm. You know, the question is is that as a result of their their workload or some difference in diagnosis? Or um, more likely, it's felt that those individuals have access to more lethal means, meaning that although they may attempt less frequently, those attempts are are much more significant and fatal. Um, and in fact, when we look at the data overall for physician suicide, we know that is in fact the case. They are they are using more often poisoning um, and and firearms, uh, both of which, um, obviously, with regard to poisoning, physicians have knowledge that the general population doesn't have meaning that they're more likely to die from that attempt uh, rather than survive Um, we also we do know that depression and anxiety between physicians and the general population is comparable historically Uh, the data with regard to the current pandemic is still out but we know with with regard to before the pandemic physicians experienced depression and anxiety at a very similar rate to the general population so I can't say that it's simply that they're experiencing a higher disease burden or a mental health burden compared to, the, compared to the rest of the country. Um, however, like you spoke of, there is substantial stigma facing the medical community, particularly physicians that, that relates to mental health. Um, One piece of that is that medical licensure boards across the country ask very invasive and unnecessary questions about mental health history. Physicians are frequently concerned about the fact that they may have loss of licensure as a result of seeking help. Interestingly, these questions are almost always in violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. But understandably, physicians don't want to take that on. Again, they, they worry about retribution. Until 2020, actually, Alaska was considered by a number of professional organizations the worst offender as it related to the level of ADA violations, mm-hmm. um, as it related to questions in the medical licensure. So that's certainly a factor. I think it's also important to know that the culture of medicine and healthcare is such that healthcare workers, physicians included in that group. Are trained to ignore their own needs and focus on the care of others. Right. Um, and that often translates into a population that's less likely to seek care because they're externally focused, um, and, and that's to their own detriment, of course. Um, when we look at other healthcare workers, female nurses also have an elevated rate of completed suicide compared to the general population. Their rate is about 10 per 100,000. Again, that's about 1.6 times that of the general population. We don't have great data for male nurses, unfortunately, uh, nor do we have good data for a lot of other healthcare workers. So there are a number of studies that are starting to look at groups like EMTs um, and other first responders like firefighters that do demonstrate um, at least a higher degree of suicide attempt, if not completed suicide. Um, but likely right. in the next decade, we'll have more data about that. And, and again, I suspect it's this group of people um, that's very motivated to care for others to their, to their own detriment. And when that's compounded by this idea that we're supposed to be infallible in some way with regard to our own health and our own mental health and that those things might look like weaknesses, it sets up a system where we're much less likely to, to seek help from others when we need it or even support from nonprofessionals.
0: Those are all really good points. And I've been really fortunate in that I have had the opportunity to work with um, quite a number of physicians uh, in, in my practice. and um, it's been a lot of them don't want to use insurance uh, because of mm-hmm. the reasons that you mentioned. They're worried about their licensure and, and what that would mean to get a diagnosis. So that's where I think where the coaching, um, can really come in to have an impact because there is no diagnoses involved with coaching. You just sort of go and talk about what's going on. Um, so I think those are really good, yeah. I- really good issue. I mean, points to make. Uh, we do have a phone call that that is sort mm-hmm. of following up on uh, some of the stuff we were just talking about. So mm-hmm. we'll go to Kristen, and anchor point. You have a question for us?
3: Uh, yes, um, I've known about the high uh, suicide. Doctors, that's actually been an ongoing problem for 60, 70 years, as far as I can tell, if not more. But there's also the problem of uh, drug abuse and use by doctors and nurses and what have you who are stressed out. I know that in the olden days, they used to be able to get a lot just through where they were working. You know, they were they didn't have tough controls over drugs going in and out of the lockers. But even even with that done, you still have the drug companies who have no qualms about handing out uh, various uh, drugs as samples to doctors to try out in, in their practice. So I'm kind of wondering about the level of drug abuse now. Uh, are they going out on the streets mostly now to get it, or are they still getting it through the various covert ways they used to get it?
0: All right, Kristen. We will uh, take that answer off the air. I think, um, yeah, doctors are humans and nurses are humans, and we struggle with substances. Is there, uh, Mm -hmm. Doctor Doctor Kaler, would you like to take that one on? Are there higher rates of substance abuse among among doctors and, and nurses than the general population, or is it kind of just humans?
2: You know, that's a really interesting question, and I don't know that I have any data to, to answer that, and so I'll, I'll defer that to Dr. Lindquist, but I will say that part of that being human um, and when you're in unacceptable, where it's unacceptable for you sometimes, to, or you, or physicians feel like it's unacceptable to act humanly, mm-hmm. um, they find different ways, just like any other person, to numb and um when they haven't learned the tools to kind of process all the things they're going through. So I'll, I'll
1: defer the the actual mm-hmm. data part to Dr. Lindquist.
0: All right, Dr. Lindquist.
1: It's, it's, it's absolutely. It's an interesting question. And the data demonstrates somewhere between 9% of the general population develops a substance use disorder in their lifetime. There's a range of percentages when we look at physicians in particular, that's right around 10% to 12%, depending on the study. So it's in many ways, comparable close, to yeah. the experience, yeah, certainly, and and whether they're you know, there's a lot of there's not great data comparing one to the other, but certainly they're close. And again, physicians are also humans. But one of the things we know about uh, addiction and substance use disorders is that access is very. Uh, an important piece to that, which I think is what Kristen was speaking to, and and she's correct in that physicians historically have had easy access to a number of substances that have been much more challenging for people that live in the community to obtain. There have been a lot of safety measures put in place to try to mitigate and minimize that. There are a number of regulations around drug samples. In fact, many physicians' offices no longer even accept drug samples for a number of reasons. Um, but I think by and large, the, the big piece of that is that physicians are human like others. And when they aren't able to access or are not accessing other types of care, whether that's primary care, mental health care or otherwise, it's not surprising in many ways that they develop a substance use disorder many times uh, or sometimes in response to the other issues that are they're experiencing. Yeah, lots, so of stress, that, mm-hmm.
0: lots of stress, lots of stress, lots of uh, intense hours and, and coping yes. strategies we develop these unhealthy coping strategies from time to time and um, Absolutely. and alcohol we're also talking about alcohol when we include when we're talking drugs correct I
1: mean, yes yes alcohol is, is one of those and and again uh, because of the way licensure is amongst many many states people try to sort of get it get out of it on their own right they try to end their substance use disorder on their own they try to quit alone. And the data is that that just doesn't work for anyone, let alone physicians, despite our wishes that we could. And so you set up a system where physicians are disincentivized to obtain help and treatment because of the risk of significant repercussions, despite the fact that people can and do get well from their substance use disorder and can continue living their life and practicing medicine.
0: Yeah, and one of the interesting things about substance abuse problems is that uh, success is—you know—success in life and power and money and and stuff um, is really—it's—it it's, keeps people from really getting to the point where they feel like they need help. And yes, physicians mm-hmm. feel like you know they can pretty much buckle up and deal with it themselves. So those are those are all really good points mm-hmm. and important for people to remember. Um, We are uh, at our 20-minute period already, so we're going to have to take our first break. If you're just tuning into the program, psychiatrist Dr. Lisa Lindquist and family physician and physician physician coach, Dr. Tanya Kaler, have joined me today to discuss the toll that the COVID-19 pandemic is taking on the mental and emotional health of Alaska's health care providers. If you have a question for my guests or a comment about today's topic, please give us a call or send us an email. Our Anchorage number is 550 We can also be reached toll-free at 1-888-353-5752. And the last way to get your question on the air is to email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. After this short break, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Lisa Lindquist and Dr. Tanya Kaler. I'm Prentice Pemberton, and you're listening to Line 1, Your Health Connection on Alaska Public Media.
4: Line 1, Your Health Connection, comes to you from Alaska Public Media and is made possible with support from Providence Imaging Center with over 30 years of commitment to the community with a comprehensive patient-centered focus approach. Learn more at provimaging.com.
5: The Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network.
0: Welcome back to Line One, Your Health Connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just joining us today, psychiatrist Dr. Lista Lindquist and family physician and physician coach Dr. Tanya Kaler have joined me to discuss the toll that COVID-19 pandemic is taking on the mental and emotional health of Alaska's health care providers. If you have a question for us, our local number is 550 8433 our toll-free number is 1-888-353-5752, and our email is line one Um Before we continue, in our, uh, continue on here, we're going to go to the phones one more time. We're getting some phone calls, so people obviously listened and are <laughs> calling in early, so I appreciate that. Um, we have Danielle uh, in Homer. You're on line one. Go ahead.
6: Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I've been really thankful for this segment because I am a second year nursing student and I'll be um, graduating from the program here in Homer. And um, I've always wanted to be a nurse, but I have been having like this high sense of anxiety about going into what's happening right now. And mm. you know, think, wondering if, oh, will I be able to handle that as a, a you know, fresh nurse. And so I've been, if there's any words of wisdom for somebody, you know, going into the field, how to prepare themselves for the onslaught of, you know, yeah, what's happening.
0: All right, Danielle, that is a perfect question, um, for this show. And I want to, uh, I want to say thank you and um, for reaching out and for asking that question. That's exactly what we need more of. So uh, which one of you wants to, to tackle that first? Dr. Lindquist, maybe you want to start us off?
1: Sure, I, I'm happy to start it off. And, Danielle, I appreciate you calling, and, and I'm so excited to hear about your future career. I think you're right, though. You're entering at a time that is anxiety-provoking, even for people who've been in the field for decades. Uh, for for a number of reasons. I think it's largely a very unpredictable time in healthcare in terms of what will happen in a way that's unprecedented. I I always encourage everyone if they can seek out some sort of support, whether that's formal or informal, both are really helpful. I know many uh, nurses and physicians who see a therapist regularly to process some of that anxiety. But we also know that one of the things that can be preventative with regard to developing anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress symptoms, things like that, which we're going to talk about today, is the development of support systems. And those can be support systems like friends and family members with whom you feel comfortable having more of these conversations with, who you feel comfortable being able to sort of debrief some of the more challenging times that you're experiencing. Those are all things that can be very helpful in sort of tackling that anxiety you're experiencing. It's also very recommended to find a mentor that you trust within healthcare who, who you feel you can have those conversations with and be able to talk about sort of the more complex and complicated not just experiences that you're having, but also your emotional experiences that relates to that. Um, But I do want to hear Dr. Keeler's opinion about this, because I would imagine some of the things that affect physicians also may affect um, new nurses.
0: Absolutely. Dr. Keeler.
1: Yeah, sure. I, um, I
2: definitely, um, Danielle, thank you so much for um, stepping up and serving in, in healthcare because it is such, it still is an amazing field to be in. And so, um, even though times are a little bit different right now, like um, I just wanted to express my appreciation for what you're doing. And I totally agree on the mentor and the social support. I think the determination of um, the determinant of like avoiding the stress disorders and everything, really having a support group um, is there. And that can be your friend, like um, Dr. Lindquist said. I think another thing is, just knowing that you're still in the learning process. And I think there's this arrival fallacy that happens. I would assume that it happens in nursing as it does in um, the physician world where you think, okay, you're going to finish your training and you're going to know it all and you're ready for anything. And just normalizing the fact that you're, it's a lifelong learning process. And so when you have those self-doubts and that inner critic that really gets ramped up, like have, that's when you can talk to your mentor coach because all of this is a learning process. And so um, learning to have self-compassion early on is going to be a huge benefit for you. And then the, mm-hmm. other, the other thing I would say is um, just having the ability to separate out facts from the story you have about those facts is an, a powerful tool and, um, because we tell our brain likes to make sense of things. And sometimes when we're stressed, it's going to make sense of things in a very negative uh, manner. And so just once you have those thoughts, you just want to separate out and say, okay, what do I actually know? What do I actually know is true? Um, and then just kind of depersonalizing, um, how people respond to you just a little bit, give you a little bit of space, I think sets you up for success. So I hope that's helpful.
0: <laughs> yeah. Learning yeah. what, what is about you and what's about other people, what you have control of and what you don't. And I, I love the self-compassion comment um, and coming in and, and learning. I mean, I, uh, as a therapist, we come in and, you know, out of school and really know nothing about human suffering. We've read a lot about it, but then you get into the. Into the trenches, and you work in some of the homes out in in the poor communities, and you see the the trauma and the devastation, and it's a it's a learning curve that's um, quite steep, and uh, it it really does take time, and, and learning from from those who have been there and walked that path before is so important. So. Thank you for that call, Danielle. Um, I do wanna, we got to move quickly now. We're <laughs> halfway through and we haven't even talked about trauma, um, but I do wanna get to, to Lisa's question really quickly in Fairbanks. Lisa, you have a question for us that might be more appropriate for next week's program, but go ahead and ask it anyway and we'll see. Yes,
4: am
0: I on? Yes, you are, go ahead, Lisa. Yes, yeah, my
4: name? I'm a neuroscientist from UAF and deal with traumatic brain injuries, and I've been following for a long time the neurobiology of COVID-19, and you can look that up on the internet. It's a really good um, article by a leading uh, Alzheimer's researcher, and it helps us um, bring back people from COVID-19 brain fog with Alzheimer's research. We can bring back people by 84% with neurofeedback and also brain training techniques and i'd like to give you some some information um we don't Uh, we attack the brain our brains are highly protected but we don't know and it uh, it's able to come through the nose and it causes inflammation the brain and it can also be indirectly impacted by blood clots or lack of oxygen and these areas that are damaged we there, um, a group of scientists at Oxford found that it might be because some of the survivors lose brain tissue. A part of an ongoing study of 782 volunteers, they found half had contracted COVID-19, and they all had brain tissue loss, even asymptomatic. And because of this brain tissue loss, certain areas are amygdala and smell, which causes disgust. And I was at the Anchorage Assembly meeting, and you could see how these people are having more and more brain damage and more uh, damage, especially through migraines, fear, of flight, and fright, and we need to start dealing with it because we're going to have a, um, this leads into, with this damage, can lead into Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and other diseases down the road within five to six years. I even mean, showing within a year of this damage. Um, we need to address this damage and start helping and healing them instead of uh, um, victimizing them because they are not all there because of
0: having COVID-19 because of the mental damage. And stop allowing them to use All right, to Lisa, we're kind of losing you. You're coming in and out, but I appreciate the call. I'm not sure what's going on with the phone, but um, that does sound like a different uh, conversation for a different day. And... And mm-hmm. probably a whole show, right, on the <laughs> the neurological damage that comes from COVID-19. I don't know anything about it, um, but uh, certainly that is uh, – do either one of y'all – did you kind of understand what she was getting at, or?
1: Uh, it's certainly, it in, in, in might my, in my... to listen more
2: uh, on, a, on another episode. Love to hear it.
4: <laughs>
1: All right. Yes. It's, it's another episode, and I, I love talking about neurobiology uh, as it relates to COVID, but certainly I think you're right. It's another episode.
0: Okay, so let's jump into um, uh, PTSD, vicarious secondary mm-hmm. trauma, acute stress reaction, mm-hmm. trauma stress response. All these things are terms mm-hmm. that are thrown around. Um, I guess, uh, Dr. Lindquist, can you tar- start us off with talking about what is vicarious or secondary trauma? What does that mean?
1: Great. So, vicarious or secondary trauma was described um, in the mid 1990s, and it's this idea that uh, individuals, particularly those that work in healthcare, like therapists or, or other healthcare workers, um, often repeatedly are exposed to the story of another's trauma. Um, and that person experiencing the primary trauma and then the healthcare worker experiences the trauma of that individual. Um, usually it's, uh, you know, and it can be a variety of traumas when it was first described in the literature it was talking about, you know, you uh, therapists and others who, who would treat individuals who had you know often trauma disorders like PTSD and reviewing and uh, talking about the traum- traumatic experiences they would have, the, the therapists themselves would start to experience uh, the weight of that trauma themselves to some degree. Um, the reality is we're all humans and we see ourselves in those individuals that we care for and we often hold the trauma of our patients and it can affect us very personally and in, prof- in a profound way.
0: Yeah, I I read this really interesting article and I did a a presentation for the Anchorage Press Club Mm -hmm. and one of the most interesting examples of vicarious trauma was um, media members who now are sitting Mm -hmm. and sifting through like hundreds, thousands mm-hmm. of pictures of war and children who were traumatized and abused and the pictures of mm-hmm. car wrecks. I mean, just looking at the pictures has a physiological impact like on our brain. Um, yes. And so can you talk about like, how does that, how is that similar to someone who's actually experienced a traumatic event? Um, what happens in our brains when we're exposed to trauma and uh, what are some of the symptoms?
1: That's a good question. So if someone experiences trauma, there's a lot of parts of the brain that are involved in that process, like the amygdala, the hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex, uh, a number of uh, neurobiological structures, but also involved in that is the neuroendocrine or neurohormonal system and the sympathetic nervous system. And basically, when a person experiences a traumatic event, there's a stress result to include the release of adrenaline and cortisol it provokes behaviors, often alert, vigilance behaviors, that help keep us alive. That keep us out of a dangerous experience, or in response to a dangerous experience, keep us alive through that experience. Um, during that time, the same that results in, you know, high blood pressure, elevated heart rate, looking around, um, sort of the fight or flight response that's classically described. And during that same time, the memory is encoded in our hippocampus along with the physiologic experience that our body goes through at the same time. That trauma response can vary between people. Um, there, there's actually the six Fs of a trauma response that are described in sequence. Those are freeze, flight, fight, fright, flag, and faint. Um, and many people experience uh, after immediate trauma, things like fear, anxiety, panic, Um, They can feel detached or confused about what happened, and many people feel numb. Um, Unfortunately, you know, not all traumas are a singular event, like one motor vehicle accident, for example. Um, But they're things that are experienced over and over again or in a repetitive way, that chronic trauma. And so unlike when the system functions and you have one traumatic event and one response to it that happens in your body that then sort of dissipates over time, in chronic trauma... That is continuously going. You're having a ton. Your body is being flooded with adrenaline and cortisol, and those systems get substantially dysregulated and can impair the appropriate response to trauma, so you're not responding to stressful situations the correct way. But also, then your brain begins to look at things that aren't traumatic or scary, but in an effort to protect you, because so many things have been traumatic and scary, responds in a very similar way. So the system becomes dysregulated over time with repeated or chronic trauma.
0: Yeah, it's almost like it's short circuiting, and it's always looking for that, for that danger, and it's scanning. Um, mm-hmm. Your brain is in a heightened state of anxiety, anxiety. and what we've learned is, yes. like Dr. Kolk calls those little Ts, little traumas. Then mm-hmm. that's where we learn that bullying um, over time in childhood can be a significant traumatic, have the same impact on the brain as a significant trauma, um, a big T, as he calls them. So yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, and, and then it goes back to something that Dr. Kaler mentioned earlier, your sense of agency, right? You talked about us mm-hmm. being able to protect ourselves. That's the sense of agency. And when we can't, um, that's when it sort of gets stuck in this loop because we're trying to look a way out. So a response to trauma is normal. Um, Absolutely. But, and when does it move from, uh, a normal quote in quotes, normal trauma response to something that is, becomes maladaptive. And how do we know that?
1: It's a Very good question. I think, like you said, there is in that sort of acute time right after a traumatic experience, there are some signs and symptoms that a trauma has happened that people might experience. Again, it's sort of the residual effects from that fight or flight response. But also, you're sort of you heightened thereafter. You're continuing to make sure that you're scanning the environment to protect you from any sort of immediate trauma that might happen or unfold as a result of the initial trauma or threat. But you're not supposed to stay there forever. Your hormones and that neurohormonal system isn't supposed to be elevated and secreting those hormones, keeping us at the ready all the time. Um, initially, you can have a little bit of anxiety, some sleep impairment, that hypervigilance. But ultimately, that should not persist for a long period of time, such that after you know, a week or two, you really shouldn't be experiencing anything that's impacting your ability to function substantially. We call it acute stress disorder, anywhere from a couple of days up to a month. But then thereafter, that is when we transition into post-traumatic stress disorder, post-traumatic stress symptoms because ultimately you shouldn't have an impact in your functioning for a prolonged period of time. Those symptoms, your inability to sleep and your hypervigilance shouldn't take you away from being able to interact with others, uh, to hang out with your friends or family, to attend work, um, it shouldn't lead to suicidal thinking or profound helplessness that is unremitting. Those things become maladaptive when we're so concerned with scanning the environment for the next trauma persistently for a long period of time that we can't function in our environment. That becomes maladaptive.
0: Yeah, so it's sort of like um, I mean, it's sort of like anger in that sense. Like healthy anger is designed to to come up to eliminate a threat and then to go away, but that can get stuck. And the same thing with trauma, mm-hmm. once the threat is gone, our mm-hmm. systems should calm down in theory.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Okay, um, Dr. Kaler, I want to ask you a little bit now that we've sort of established what that is, what is happening as far as are you waiting, what's your role in in I guess, in the hospitals or in healthcare, and this could be for either of you, but are we waiting for people to come and say, I'm having difficulty, or is there some sort of outreach for any healthcare professionals that might be listening? Is there somewhere that they can go? Or are you guys reaching out um, to folks to try to increase the you know, awareness that there are, is help and there's places available to go and talk and to, to de-stress?
2: Yeah, so I um, I'll talk about my own specific um, outreach, and then uh, I think Dr. Linquist has um, uh, lots of resources um, that she can share as well, and if she's already doing a lot herself. Great. Um, my personal thing is because I'm working in specific residency programs, is I'm kind of trying to um, give them, give the residents and faculty, kind of the what to do with these little T's as they're happening, right? Because they happen throughout training. They happen throughout your, you know, uh, years as faculty. And kind of giving them some some better tools to deal with that now. Um, and I um, had just started something that I call respite rounds. And so that's for people, some of my um, graduates who have been through some of my programs, where it's just a free time for peer, peer-to-peer support and, um, just uh, coming together with shared experiences and that sort of thing that I think is um, um, very helpful. And then I just put out a lot of um, information as much as I can on on blogs because I want this to be free and accessible to people who are not in the place where they are wanting to hire a coach or, Um, Don't feel that they need a therapist yet, but to go ahead and start to learn some of these things. So that's kind of what I'm doing in my realm.
0: All right. Um, Lisa, I'm going to give you a chance to think about your answer because we are up against uh, the break here. So we're actually we're past it. If you're just tuning in today, psychiatrist Dr. Lisa Lindquist and family physician and physician coach Dr. Tanya Kaler have joined me today to discuss the toll that the COVID-19 pandemic is taking on the mental and emotional health of Alaska's health care providers. After this short break, we will return for more of our conversation. I'm Prentice Pemberton. You're listening to Line 1, Your Health Connection, in Alaska Public Media.
4: You're listening to Line 1 from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line 1 on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Everyone is excited for the 2021-2022 school year. It's important to prepare for an active year ahead, whether you play competitive sports or just enjoy being active it's important to make your overall health a priority. So get your COVID-19 vaccine, stay active and involved, check in with friends and family, and bounce back from COVID together and make it a great year. This message sponsored by the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services.
0: Welcome back to Line 1, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just tuning in, psychiatrist Dr. Lisa Lindquist and family physician and physician physician coach Dr. Tanya Kaler have joined me today to discuss the toll that COVID-19 is taking on the mental and emotional health of Alaska's health care providers. If you have a question for us, our Anchorage number, 550 8433 we can be reached toll-free at one And the last way is to email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. I have a phone call that I would like uh, to have hold on for just a, another minute or so, and an email that's really good that I'd like to get to. Um, but first, I'd like, Dr. Lindquist, if you could um, sort of talk a little bit about some of the resources and what you're doing for outreach and, and for medical professionals who might be listening, What they, what can they do to get some support?
1: Wonderful. So I think from uh, even nationally, we're seeing um, outreach occurring and support agencies developing. Um, Dr. Mona Massoud um, actually was the founder of something called the Physician Support Line, which is a free confidential support line actually run for physicians by psychiatrists. You can see go to physiciansupportline.com to see more information there. But NAMI, as well, has also developed a text health line just for healthcare professionals um, there are another a number of other sort of healthcare-facing organizations that have attempted to do that. A number of hospitals have also taken it upon themselves to either develop or strengthen their various wellness committees or, or groups that exist for their healthcare workers. Certainly, I will say that Providence has worked strongly to do that, both uh, at the state level as well as within the system itself, um, many places are developing um, or broadening the uh, for their healthcare workers the uh, access and availability to therapists that the uh, healthcare workers can establish with. Many are doing that um, at no cost to the healthcare worker or at a substantially reduced rate, and off- also doing things like offering it via telemedicine, which is much more accessible, particularly during a pandemic, uh, for overburdened healthcare workers. Um, at our institution, we've developed wellness rounds wherein uh, myself and a couple of other members of physician or administrative leadership are actually going to the floors throughout the work day and checking in one-on-one with. Uh, physicians, as well as a number of other healthcare workers to see how it's going. If there's things that we could either be doing to lighten their load or make sure that they have the support and resources they need. Um, spiritual care is joining um, us on those endeavors as well. When we know that there's certain units that may have experienced an increased number of deaths, um, we also are increasing the, our presence on those units. And I don't think we're unique in this. I think many other hospitals and institutions are doing very similar things. Um, I want to make people uh, aware, though, that there are online resources, and and maybe, Prentice, I can share those with you, and you can place them on the the website there, uh, for uh, healthcare workers to seek confidential help uh, and support at this time, uh, because I think it is absolutely necessary, and I don't want people to be waiting until they're at their absolute worst to seek those resources. I think there is significant value in seeking them now, even though you may not be at your worst.
0: Yeah. Okay. Please do send those to us and we can add them Mm -hmm. to the, uh, to the website for today's show, the page for today's show. Um, I have a, a call that I really want to get to because it addresses mm-hmm. one of the questions that we won't get to, um, okay. which which was uh, if someone is concerned about a family member or friend um, who's a healthcare worker and they're they're worried, what can they do? So uh, I think it's Elena or Alana. Um, you're on line one. Go ahead.
6: It's Alana. Thank you. Um, so my sister, she works. She's a nurse at Fairbanks Memorial. And she's, she's watched multiple patients from the time they get there and has had to go through their, their whole process of not being so bad to suddenly they're, they're dead. And, and she's let me know, you know, it, it it's getting to her and she feels like she's going to pop. Yet I told her, you need to go see a counselor. And she's, she's never had to see one in her 47 years of life. Right. so. How can I properly try to coach her or be there how can I properly be there for her? Of course she's I'm in Anchorage and she's in Fairbanks, so mm-hmm. I I don't I don't want it to become the worst for her. She used to be pretty strong. Oh, yeah. and I can I can even feel she's 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 getting weaker. Um, with the handling of these and all all that she's seen through, through being a nurse up there.
0: All right. Thank you so much for that question. That's the perfect question for today again. Um, and I'll go ahead and let each of our, uh, our guests answer that. And I guess we can start with uh, Dr. Kaler.
2: Sure. Um, Elena, I think, um, I think it's wonderful that she has family members who are um, paying attention. And so um, I would start, if you haven't already, just um, asking her about her experience um, and seeing what she's doing for her self-care and seeing how she is judging whether or not um, somebody could come alongside her and give professional trained help um, and how beneficial that would be and what obstacles there might be for her. And just ask from a, um, a non-judgmental, loving space where you just get to listen to her. I think that is going to be like the the main key step and then also just like reassuring her that anytime she needs to pick up the phone and call you you, that you're there for her and then I'll let the
1: experts weigh in
2: from here.
0: Uh, Dr. Linklist?
1: Yeah, Alana, that's a, a great question and I think one of the challenges is we don't want to normalize this pandemic. This pandemic is not normal. The experiences that our healthcare working workers are going through are not normal. These are not things that we're trained for. It is truly, a, and I don't mean to sound trite, it is an unprecedented experience. However, the significant challenges that that healthcare workers are facing as a result, we need to normalize help-seeking for those. So I think as Dr. Kaler mentioned, simply providing a presence for her and letting her know and inquiring how you can provide support for her will help normalize that asking for help is a normal experience and that it can be done and that you're encouraging it and encouraging self-care. I think additionally, you know, reminding her again in that non-judgmental space when you're having some of those conversations that many healthcare workers and many people who are not healthcare workers seek professional and non-professional assistance and support particularly during times that are more challenging, um, and reminding her of some of that self-compassion that she's allowed to have. It, it is interesting when we look at the data of individuals who go, who experience traumatic events. Um, one of the most convicted, consistent predictors of negative outcomes meaning the people who are more likely to go on to develop ptsd after a traumatic event or multiple traumatic event happens are those who feel like they can't obtain necessary support most commonly social not professional support after those events happen so simply opening up the doors of communication like dr Kaler spoke to can be immensely helpful and protective for your sister
0: yeah i would like to add that i mean Um, another name for count or for therapist is counselor and people throughout Mm -hmm. time have sought counsel, um, and, and talking to someone who's not connected to the system or not connected to your family and really being able to just tell your story and have someone witness it and empathize. Um, but I think, uh, both of you, both of my guests make really good points that this is not normal times. This is not Oh, suck it up. What's, you know, what's the problem? Um, There is a big problem. And there's people, some of the stories that I've heard and and watching people die alone and um, the quickness Mm -hmm. and and the swiftness of it um, has been taken a very serious toll. And so I think to not seek out some sort of counsel if you don't have those social supports, to not do that is really the problem. Um, We go to the doctor when we don't feel right or when our system is not right, when we have a cough or we have a fever. We go to see a counselor or a therapist or a priest or a mentor when when something's off emotionally in our system. So I think those are really important points and a great, great, um, a great, great call. So thank you so much. I also want to get to this email, which I think is important. Um, it's from Donna. It says, hi, how can we as a community, um, how can we seriously support our healthcare workers now in this time? Um, Dr. Lenguist, do you want to start us off with that?
1: That's a, that's a, it's a challenging question. I think, unfortunately, uh, you know, and I, I, I tend to try to shy away a little bit from, from the political. It gets political, right? (laughs) It it gets, you know, despite saying that this shouldn't be a political issue, it is um, for one reason or another. It has become that way. But I think that that kindness goes a very long way. Um, I think thanking just like we thank our veterans, yes. thanking healthcare care workers. Um, we know we know it works for veterans. We know the positive outcomes that are that are associated with thanking veterans and how that is actually protective um, against the development of things like PTSD. Thanking our healthcare workers for the things that they are doing can go a long way. Demonstrating support in that way, admittedly placing signs outside the hospital showing your support, uh, writing thank you cards um, to your primary care physicians or primary care providers can be very helpful to them during this time. It's not just the individuals who are working in the hospitals or on the floors who are experiencing the strain in the healthcare system right now. Yes, those individuals are experiencing um, a higher degree of post-traumatic symptoms and anxiety. However, the burden is uh, exists for all. Um, and so expressing gratitude and thanks to those people, um, continuing to speak up uh, for the benefits of public health at this time can go a long way for individuals. Um, and, and obviously, I don't think it needs to be said, but I will um Th- threats are not helpful. Um, accusations about murder right. and lie are not helpful. Those sorts of negative, negative commentary really take a toll um, on our healthcare workers at those times. So gratitude and kindness can be of utmost importance.
0: It reminds me of... Uh Vietnam veterans coming back and having things thrown at them and long lines of people telling, calling them baby killers. And, um, Uh they were there trying to do our job that the politicians put them to do. So, I mean, it's a different circumstance, obviously, but those are really good points. Gratitude. Thank your doctor. Thank your nurse. Um, put up a sign, uh, Dr. Kaler, anything to add?
2: Yeah, I think, um, I just want to show, there was a video that contrasted, uh, the beginning of the pandemic, um, people cheering outside of hospitals at shift change
4: Mm, Um, and
2: contrasting that with the protesters being out there now. And it's not political, but it is exactly what Dr. Lindquist says, And there are grassroots organizations getting more and more protesters outside of assembly meetings and hurling assaults at some of our best, most upstanding physicians and uh, healthcare workers in our communities, And, um, for the people out here, there who love grassroots movements, let's counter that because our healthcare workers feel under attack, and they need to see the opposite is actually true. That there are way much, way many more people in this community that love and support them than hear the jeers from outside the hospitals and assembly meetings.
0: Mm-hmm. That was really well said. And I, I can hear the emotion and I know it's important. And um, I have a lot of friends who are doctors and um, my wife runs the Alaska hospitalist group. And, you know, so I know the toll that it's taking and how much pain that's causing. So, um, doctor, I'll, I'll leave that. Dr. Kaler as your take home point. But uh, Dr. Lindquist, do you have you have like 10 seconds to give us a take home <laughs> point.
1: I I think echoing the need for, for kindness and gratitude and recognizing that our healthcare workers are doing unprecedented things at this time and that help and support is available. It is not just for when you reach rock bottom but is for every step um, of your experience as a healthcare worker, there are support resources available.
0: All right. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you both. Look on the website for uh, information about today's show. I'll add some of those resources that Dr. Lindquist was talking about. I will be back next week with a look at what's happening inside Alaska's hospitals with physicians Dr. Leslie Gonsett and Dr. Ben Wesley. Line One is a production
4: of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the host and participants, and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Learn more about Line One and listen online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.